Hey, so this is a conversation with my friend Adam. We talk about, oh boy, we talk about lying, we talk about friendship, we talk about giving and receiving feedback. And I guess in that vein, if, if you have any feedback, I think we would both love to, um, we'd love to hear it. We'd love to hear any feedback you guys might want to give us. Okay, here we go. So one of the things that I think we struggle with a lot as friends is the question of lies. So I'd, I'd be curious to hear how you think about that. Well, I'm going to start with an anecdote. Okay. Uh, we have this nice tradition of, uh, of taking trips together with one other friend. And uh, we were hanging out, having dinner, and I was drinking a, drinking a beer. I had a little bit left, very, very little. And I went inside and I was cleaning dishes from, from dinner. We were uh, at a house. And uh, where I was, I was at the sink and I could see you outside. I saw you pick up my beer can and look at it, give it a little shake, 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 <laughs> and realize that there was very little left and, uh, and proceed to, to dump it out. Dude, that was my last, you know, <laughs> sweet, sweet sip of nectar, you know, that last ounce. I was saving that. <laughs> I was saving that, and, uh, and I was watching you do it through the window, and you came inside, and uh, we were, you know, you were cleaning the dishes, and I was already inside, and I said, oh, hey, what, what happened to my beer? Mm, asking the question, knowing the answer. Uh, a little bit, and, and your response was sort of the... The, the shoulder shrug, oh, well, I don't know. Mm. And, um, <laughs> and it, it bothered me that you did it. Uh, not that you dumped out the beer, uh, but that when I asked you about it, that, that you lied about it. Right, the, uh, the cover-up was worse than the crime. Well, definitely in this case. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 crime was, uh, the crime was an ounce of, uh, of nectar, and, and the, um, and the cover-up was you just lied to my face about about something. Why why did you do it? Right, right. And I I think it's very easy for me to say why would you make such a big deal out of such a small sin? But the sin isn't the beer. The sin is the lie. If I'm willing to lie to you about something so trivial, what won't I lie about? Let's say there was a real issue. It would be easier or more expedient for me to lie in that situation, right? So you could argue in one fell swoop, I took a 15, 14-year relationship and took out the foundation stone because I revealed to you that the truth was not important and I was willing to lie about trivialities. Is that how you saw it? Um. I wouldn't say that it made me think that you always lie to me. Okay. It, it made me question when you would choose to and when you wouldn't. And since I didn't have any understanding of what your what your code was, if there was any, that it just made me feel very disconnected from you. I'd like to think at least, and I, I generally try not to lie in those types of situations. And I'm, um, and I'm, and I'm. L- I'm okay with the conflict that could come up mm-hmm. from that from that lie. Uh, I mean, from uh, <laughs> from from the from the truth, from the uncomfortable truth. I view that I view those as important opportunities for for learning and 
and pressing friendships and relationships further by being forthright, uh, whether it's a big thing or a little thing. And so I have, uh, I try to operate with sort of a, a zero tolerance for those types of lies. Um, mm-hmm. It's, yeah, I think this reveals, I think a problem that I have more than anything else, because I think your relationship, sorry, your, your approach to relationships is healthier than mine. And I, I need to think this through for, for a second. You're essentially willing to stress or to test a friendship and to say either this friendship is very weak and therefore this test is a healthy one because it will break and reveal the friendship as weak or in a, in a sort of, you know, in a sort of anti-fragility sense, the stress is going to make the friendship stronger by clarifying issues, by resolving minor tensions that have arisen over the months or years. And my approach has always been much more timid. And I think that comes from having lost what I considered to be very strong friendships in the past very easily. And so I think I have this instinctual belief that all friendships are fragile. And that if I... If I tell you the truth about the beer, minor as that seems, it could destabilize the friendship all by itself. I think it's almost like meekness. It's that I don't want to do anything to challenge the friendship, and so I will lie to protect your view of me or to protect the friendship. And that almost turns into something that's like passive-aggressive or it avoids the conflict. And as a result, I think it makes the friendship more fragile over time because issues don't get addressed or I just try to ignore them and then I repress them or they simmer under the surface of my consciousness and they build up and then something happens and the friendship doesn't bend the way that you want it to and gets stronger from that, it breaks. Yeah, I I think that's, I mean, that's a great summary uh, in terms of friendships Yeah, I think we approach them very differently. I think that having having a release valve on tension and opening that valve uh, often is is valuable to strengthen our friendship. Um, What does that release valve look like to you? If there's something that comes up for me in a friendship that I feel like makes me feel less close to someone or like I don't know them as well as I thought that they did or they do something that doesn't align with my values. I don't want to let it simmer indefinitely. I'll, I'll try to let little things go, but if it's something that keeps coming up for me, I want to attack it head on because I want my friendships to be, um, to be getting stronger over time. Mm-hmm. And and I guess I'm I'm willing to I'm willing to I'm willing to sacrifice a friendship if it actually wasn't as strong as I thought it was. Uh, so the release valve is is a willingness to engage and to rattle the sabers and yeah put I guess put the friendship on the line if it and and test it and see if we're really if we're thinking about it the same way and if we're not that might be okay too but but let's engage in a honest and transparent way. Right. Uh, and I think there's a difference between honesty and transparency. Uh, but with my close friends, I really seek both. 
and then let's just see where things go and be uncomfortable with that. Uh, be sorry, be comfortable with whatever that outcome is, right? E- even though the engaging part may be very uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way to put it because I am conflict avoidant, and the conversations that you like to have sometimes I consider to be uncomfortable. And again, I think that's my, <laughs> I think that's my problem because. If you just pretend everything's perfect all the time in a, in a friendship, the inevitable frictions, they accumulate. And then it's like a branch with snow on it, and it, it, it just breaks. I guess, I guess my question is this. If the goal is to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, comfortable in that state of prodding and poking at the friendship, I mean, how has this worked out over your life? Has there been a number of people that you thought the relationship could handle this kind of conflict and it couldn't? And maybe, sorry to keep going, but maybe that's a good thing, right? Because maybe it's better to have five friends that are a nine out of 10 than to have 20 friends that are a four. Because the four friend won't be honest with you. He'll lie to you. He'll keep things from you, he won't make an effort to engage. And so the things you should be getting from that friendship, like, (laughs) it's like eating junk food in a sense. Like, you think it's food, but it's not doing anything for your body. But you don't know that because you've been told it's a real friendship or it's real food. I don't know. I'm kind of babbling. Does that make any sense? It, It makes a lot of sense. And I guess, so my experience has been this strategy, if you could call it that, has pretty much always worked out for me. When it's been a friendship that I've cared about um, and I've tested it, that it has ultimately worked out and resolved itself in a a way that I felt really good about, uh, in that it has ultimately strengthened a friendship. Now, what I will say is that I can think of three people who today I consider very, very close friends from different stages of my life two of whom were childhood friends, one of whom was a friend from when I was older. And in each instance, I had multi-year falling outs with them uh, because I was willing to uh, have the uncomfortable conversation and, and push them away. But having that separate, and then we, there was, we were not friends. We were not close. We didn't talk or engage, you know. We might exchange an email once or twice a year, but we were not friends. But they're now close friends again because we had, because I tested them. And and they ultimately, uh, I was disappointed by the way things were in the immediate term. Mm-hmm. But as time passed, as I changed and as they changed, uh, we reconciled those differences. Generally, I found that the people who I care about, who I think care about me, respond very positively when I tell them what's going on for me, and I tell them that they're not meeting my expectations, or um, you know that I feel hurt in some way, uh, purposeful or not. There may be some survivorship bias here. I'm I, I'm not sure about friends. I can think of one example of someone who I was I was 
close with at a point in time and had what I thought was a, a good friendship. Maybe there were some red flags, but that friendship did end up breaking. Um, I made a big mistake in that instance. And, um, you know, I, I tried to reconcile that one. And, uh, and it didn't, we didn't end up ever being as, as close as, as we used to be. When you have, I guess, <laughs> I guess maybe the term would be like a break. How does that resolve itself positively? Like what happens to reestablish the friendship? Usually it's, it's time is a big component of it. Um, time is very healing. Um, I think it's also a mixture of just serendipity and, and a deep feeling that there was a connection there that is missing that comes with time. It may come with, uh, Oh, I read an article and it made me think of that person and I shared it with that person and they, and, and he, generally it's he, he responded and, Mm-hmm. Hey, thanks for sending this. This really, I appreciate this. Uh, and and it was just sort of the, there was an olive branch, or maybe it was in the other direction. I can think of, of an example where, um, you know, I was uh, having a having a rough time, a, pro- a professional challenge, and and a friend who I'd had this falling out with sort of knew that I'd I'd, I'd been having it had been going on for a little while, and and I don't know if he reached out or exactly how it came about, but. You know, invited me to something where, where it would be helpful for me to meet some different people and have create some some professional opportunities for myself. And and there was the olive branch in the other direction. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it was that the friendship was never fully gone. It was just kind of the embers were smoldering, mm-hmm. and they'd been kind of smoldering. And it had been for a year or two, or maybe three, but probably in that in that sort of length of time and in all of these instances and across my life. And then, then there was something that brought me back some, almost like a callback. Mm -hmm. Um, because when you have a friendship and it's a deep friendship, you have, um, you have the content and then you have just all of the, the muscle memory from it, from the the happy, the joyful times and something that just kind of comes up that you connect to that memory. I think the way I, I refer to that, at least, is sort of the common language, is that every relationship has its own language. And it's really funny you bring that up, because last night we were playing Taboo, and and I'm really bad at the game, but I think it's it's a lot of fun, and you're really good at it. And I think what makes you good at it and me bad at it is the same thing, is that I look at the clues, and I'm trying to find ways to say the words that are forbidden without saying them but you are using our common language to sort of attack the word from an orthogonal basis. So, so for example, like um, I picked you up at the airport yesterday and so it's probably airport and then five words that just scream to be said for airport. And I would be like, Oh, how can I get around these, these five words? Instead you said, thanks for picking us up at the, and airport was just the obvious word. I think that kind of connection, which is sort of, the result of cumulative shared experience and sort of idiosyncratic experience is really powerful because you do develop these idioms. You do develop this common language. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. I, I guess um, one thing that we've talked about a little bit with respect to friendship, um, I would say I have um, a relatively small number of really close friends, people who I really am willing to have these hard conversations with. 
And then there's an orbit of people who I'm meeting and thinking, you know, this is someone who could be a friend, could be a dear friend in the distant future. We'll kind of see how it progresses. And I want to kind of, from an efficiency standpoint, uh, triage a bit and, 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 and see. And so one way to do it is to test it a little bit. And, um, and the other way is, I mean, to your point, having that common language and finding that common language can be a real, can be a real accelerator. So I'll tell you a, a story about how I did that uh, with someone who's a really close friend who I've, I've known for almost as long as I've known you, um, someone who I actually met through you. And, uh, and the fact that I met him through you and, and you felt close to him and my initial read was this was a good guy and someone who I, I'd like to be friends with. Um, this was back in the, the halcyon days in New York City. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing that I do is I am willing to be better friends with someone as a signal without any expectation of reciprocity. I guess there probably is some expectation to just to see how it goes. And uh, we were at a, I was at a holiday party for my firm and and after the holiday party we went to this um exclusive club that uh certainly not a place that would ever let me in <laughs> but uh because my company was uh you know buying a table at this place we a bunch of guys <laughs> went to this club and and I uh I told this this new friend hey you should come meet us here I couldn't ordinarily get into this place you probably could but um I'm here and the Drinks are flowing. Come and hang out. It's a fun time. And this is the type of person who's always up for a fun time. And so he said, sure, I'll come. And he came, you know, all, all the way down, uh, downtown and, uh, and texted me, hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm having trouble getting in. And I said, oh, that's weird, you know, because I told the guy at the front, you know, we've got this table and we're spending all this money, you know, it shouldn't be a problem. I told him to, to let you in. He said, yeah, that, that's not working. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that didn't do the trick? Yeah, that didn't do the trick. And uh, um, so I went out to the front and, you know, I was inside and he was outside and I was trying to get the, be obnoxious and persuasive and in, in the way that a 20, only a 27 year old with a few drinks in him could be. And, um, uh, <laughs> And yeah, it just, uh, it wasn't working. And, um, and I sort of thought, well, you know, I'm having a fun time. I'm with my colleagues and this is a a place I'm probably not going to be back to anytime soon. So, you know, I could sort of enjoy myself and this, uh, this friend was saying, oh, you know, whatever, don't worry about it. I'll just go home. And, um, and so I sort of had a, I was at a decision node and I could have said, hey, hey, go home. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, sorry. It didn't work out. I decided to go a different way in that moment. Um, and, and that way was, no, I'm going to leave with this guy. And I'm going to do it in a fantastic fa- fashion that only a 27-year-old with a few drinks in him could. And so I went out in a, in a blaze of fury. And, and that bouncer heard all sorts of things from me. And, um, and, you know, we went off and we went somewhere else and we had a great time. And, you know... For me, it was, in some ways, you could say sort of a low-risk play because um, I'd had my fun and it's time to move on. And But from his perspective, I think, and uh, we could certainly ask him, I feel like I might have talked to him about it over the years, he viewed that as, uh, 
you know, it was a real bid, mm-hmm. you know, that I was willing to, to do that. And, um, and at the time you weren't that close. No, we were not. Right. Yeah, we were not. But, but I felt like this was someone worth investing in. And you know what? Uh, 10, 12 years later, I think it was a good call. Yeah. Um, and you know, we can't, we can't know what the counterfactual would be. Uh, but I viewed it as a, as a pivotal moment in, in our nascent friendship. Yeah. Could be wrong. I think most of what I've learned about friendship, I've learned from you. And the point that you made, I think earlier is really important. Uh, And again, I'm sort of talking to myself here, trying to think about these things. But the first point is if you want a better friendship, you sort of have to go the halfway distance or 80% of the way first to show that you want to be a better friend and then see if the other person reciprocates or not. And then the second thing is once the friendship's there to sort of, to sort of make sure it's healthy, right? That it's not on autopilot and that involves at some level poking it to some degree, which again, as I said, I have, I have a very difficult time doing. I guess my question at that point becomes, how do you know when to poke the bear? And this, this is sort of a weird question because I think it ties into the lying a little bit. Lately, I've been trying to do a better job of listening to myself, like listening to my body, listening to my mind, and trying to understand that that is a feedback mechanism, essentially. Like when you're hungry, that's the universe telling you to go eat something. And when you're anxious, maybe that's the universe telling you that there's a problem in your life that needs to be addressed. And is it a sense that you feel anxious about the friendship and that is the indication from reality that it has to be tested? So my inclination is almost always to poke the bear. Mm-hmm. And I think yours might be, not to put words in your mouth, is to almost never poke the bear. Yeah, it's very fair. And so maybe we should both sing the counter note. <laughs> and I should try to poke the bear a little bit less. And you should try to poke the bear a little bit more. My inclination to poke the bear is is deep-seated. And I think for me, one of my, one of my great insecurities is a feeling of asymmetry in a relationship. Um, it's caring more about someone than he or she cares about me. And I am, to use, uh, to use Adam Grant's language, uh, I'm a matcher. I'm very um, at peace with that. Um, and that means, just by the way, I think I know, but if I'm wrong, correct me. That means you want your friends to be friends with each other? No. It means I want people who I am giving to to be, I want reciprocal, reciprocal relationships. I do not want to be taken advantage of. Ah. Um, so that's the deep seated fear of take, being taken advantage of manifests itself in friendships with this, um, matching mechanism. Whereas, and it, it needn't be, it needn't be tit for tat. It needn't be immediate. There's no scoreboard on, I just paid for that meal. You pay for the next meal. But, um, I want it to feel like it's in whack, and if it feels out of whack, it's going to bubble up for me, 
And if it bubbles up enough, I'm going to say something about it. Okay, so it, there is some sense in you that says, Adam, this is the time you have to say something. Yeah. And you acknowledge that instead yes. of repressing it like I do. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm naturally conflict-seeking um, and, I, and I try to recognize that trait, um, I do think there's something to be said for trying to give people the benefit of the doubt, trying to be agreeable, being aware of, of the fundamental attribution bias, mm-hmm. which is, you know, oh my goodness, how could he have, how could he have come when I lived in New York? How could he have come to New York and not let me know that he was in New York? How dare he? He must not care about me. Whereas there are, time, there are times when I've been in New York and purposely not told close friends of mine right. that I'm in New York. But the difference is they didn't tell you because they're assholes. And you didn't tell them because you were busy. Right. So being aware of that, of that bias, and doing my best to try and give people the benefit of the doubt. So here's, here's one of the things I really struggle with right now. So I don't have a job. I don't have a wife. I don't have children. My friends, by and large, have all of those things. And so when you, when you say to yourself, I need reciprocity in this relationship, I think it's important for me to understand that, well, I guess my question is, how do you calibrate reciprocity when people have so little free time? Mm. What can I, because part of the reason I avoid the conflict is I say, look, this person has two, three, four kids. They have a very stressful job. They have a commute. I know how exhausted I get sometimes at the end of the day, and I just do not want to engage with anyone. I just need to be alone. And for me to insist upon a certain level of reciprocity from someone who is not 100% booked, not 200% booked, but 300% booked, I just feel like a schmuck asking for more of that person's time. Mm. So I guess help me understand what I can do better. Like how can I handle the situation well I don't I don't know that I would say it's better but uh, my approach is in, in that situation that you're describing because um, because I I know exactly what you're talking about I, I do happen to have a wife and kid but I tend to be I'm very extroverted and I I get energy from having conversations with friends and catching up and and sometimes people are unavailable and this now we're getting back to the lying again and it's not it's not a matter of it's not a matter of of not lying but now we're getting to the difference between being honest and being transparent Mm -hmm. and what i do in that scenario is i say i'm not going to be passive aggressive i'm going to be direct that doesn't mean that when you're direct that you have to be abrasive it just means for me that i'm going to tell them how I feel and why I feel that way and acknowledge how their situation may preclude them from being as uh, responsive as I might like that person to be. And I have found that that tends to have pretty good results. So to, to give, to be specific with an example, someone who I feel really close to really dear friend, very, very busy really difficult to get together with, to get on the phone with, just pulled. I mean, yeah, you know, forget about 100%, like, you know, 
overcommitted. If I don't say to that person, you know, this is my internal monologue. If I don't say to that person, hey, I miss spending time with you. I miss connecting with you. I want to know what's going on with you. I want to tell you what's going on with me. If I don't at least say that, then I'm doing myself a disservice. I'm doing that person a disservice. And so I just put it out there. And not with judgment, but hey, it's been a while since we've gotten together. And it'd be great to see you. And I also understand that that may not be possible because you've got... A through Z that it is keeping you really busy. Do you think it's lying not to say that? I don't think it's lying by not saying that. But I think you're doing yourself and your relationship and that person a disservice. Are you lying to yourself Mm. if you don't say that? Let me put that into a bit of context for a second. And again, I'm thinking this through sort of on the fly, so I apologize if it sounds ridiculous. But one of the reasons I think lying is a bad idea and I talk about lying a lot because I think I'm a natural liar, right? It's something I fall into really easily, is that when you lie, you take yourself out of, I should use the first person here. When I lie, I take myself out of alignment with reality. I'm, I'm trying to trick reality, or I'm trying to fool it, or I'm trying to hide reality from myself or from others and that's impossible like reality always laughs last and if the more out of sync i get with reality the worse it's going to be and so the lies accumulate and the friction gets worse and the whole situation becomes a mess and so i know when i deny something to myself even and i don't correct it over time the problem gets bigger And I see this with my friendships, that if I feel anxiety about a friendship and I don't address it, the anxiety gets worse with time. And so I feel like that's what you're saying, that you're only hurting yourself by not being honest with people. For me, when it's not telling a friend what's going on and the way that I'm feeling, it's less of a cognitive dissonance with with a core value uh, and and more of a, I'm a steam kettle, just mm. a, wanting to burst, and I need to, I need to release that tension because because I don't like not sharing that. Generally, I get to a point where it makes sense to release the steam. You feel it's almost an obligation to the friendship and to the friend to say something's wrong here, and we have to address it. And maybe I've noticed it before you. Or maybe you've noticed it and you don't feel comfortable talking about it, but I'm more conflict approaching. And mm. so I'm willing to bring it up. Is that, is that kind of the idea? It's directionally right. I, I quiver a bit at the term something's wrong here because I don't think that I think that there's necessarily anything wrong. I think it's much more of I don't feel great about this mm-hmm. and I want you to know how I'm feeling. Trying to put it in in a positive term, which is, uh, I care about you. I miss you. I'm not feeling connected to you in the same way that I have in the past. And what can we do to change that? Right. Um, and that's when someone hears that, that person doesn't feel close to you then. And, and, you know, and there's a, there's a, I feel close to that person. Actually, they've, they either never felt close to me and I was just mistaken 
or they felt close to me, but because of circumstance and change, they don't feel close to me anymore, then it's good for them to hear that. And then they can respond in a way that allows for the friendship to drift apart or to be truncated or whatever. But more often than not, my judgment's been pretty good. Mm-hmm. And the response has been, I can't do this, but maybe we can try this. Or I'm really busy now, and I'm going to be busy for the next X amount of time, but I hear you, and let's put something on the calendar for something. Because you know what? We're all busy, but we make time for what we care about. And and I think that there's something really... Uh, valuable about telling someone with an open heart that you care about them and that you care about your relationship, it tends to strengthen, not break. Mm -hmm. And even when it does break, it, my experience has been that it's been circumstantial and, and short lived two years ish tops. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I'm very jealous of that. I feel like you've had very good positive reinforcement of doing the right thing. And I mean, I'll tell you, I've had very, several very, very bad experiences. And I mean, one time, one time I was in college and there was a friend I was very, very close to. And I asked him for what I considered to be a zero cost favor. And he basically just laughed in my face and said, no, it's not happening. You got to be kidding. There's no way I would ever do this for you. And I remember we were at dinner and I went to the restaurant bathroom and just like cried for like 10 minutes and then went back to the table, finished my meal without saying a word. And we never talked again. Mm. And I guess, you know, I was 20 and I think I'm old enough now to sort of be sympathetic towards any 20 year old, but maybe my approach was wrong and that, you know, but uh, the sense of betrayal that I felt in that moment was just, it was, it felt like vertigo. Yeah. It like, like, like the ground had opened up and that this person that I thought had my back in the toughest of situations wasn't willing to do anything for me. And then I had another situation a couple of years ago that that wasn't that bad, but I think I'm a little bit gun shy because my feedback has been more negative than yours. I mean, you can argue this was just my fault that I thought we had a strong friendship and he thought it was an acquaintanceship or whatever. And so I thought something was real that wasn't real. And that's my mistake. And you could argue even that what you do is exactly designed to forestall that kind of experience. Because you're not letting it get to the point where you have this dramatic expectation of reciprocity. You're testing it on a continual basis and saying, is this really real? And if it's not, I want to know that now, God damn it, I don't want to have to wait until I ask for something and then be left holding, you know, my hat in my hand, essentially. 
it's funny, this actually reminds me of another really good piece of advice you've given me before about friendship, which is, it's not just about poking the friendship occasionally to see if it's still strong. It's, it's demanding to see reciprocity on the other side. It's, it's going out of your way to do stuff for them, but at the same time, holding them to a similar standard. And this is a mistake I know I've made a dozen times. I'm so afraid that if I ask a friend for anything, they'll end the friendship. I don't ask them for anything. Like, I'll always go to them. I'll always meet them 90% of the way. I'm terrified if I ask them to come halfway, they'll be like, you know, Matt, you know, you're just not that interesting. Um, I have enough friends. Let's just call it quits. And that fear prompts that sort of lack of action. And you're really good at saying, look, this is a friendship. This is a two-way street. I expect a certain kind of behavior out of you. And if you can't deliver that, then that's, re- that's really informative to me. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Um, well, I think demand is a bit of a strong word mm-hmm. for it. Um, I think it's, it's certainly a hope that that, uh, you know, again, for me, the goal is to strengthen the bond and to, um, you know, it doesn't mean doing, you know, continuously doing bigger and bigger things for someone with the goal of reciprocity, with the goal of getting more from the person per se. Uh, it tends, it can often be circumstantial. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, it's, Again, it's not when, when you've built the when you built the groundwork up front with someone, um, you can have this. You can have this reciprocity that is where there's a lot more flexibility. It's like, I don't know who's treated the other for more coffee over the years. It's just, it's who cares. Sometimes I get it. Sometimes you get it. Um, but you know, I will say. One like, second. Let me. I apologize for interrupting, but it sounds like they're, and again, I, I, I struggle with the language here, but it sounds like when a friendship's going well, there's no feeling of something lacking. And so you don't even notice, you don't even, your mind is not even paying attention to who paid last. But at some point, the balance shifts enough that there's some part of you that informs you that something needs attention. And that's the impetus, maybe. That's the pressure in the tea kettle that prompts you to action. Yeah, I think that's that's well put. And I, I think for me, it's like, because I'm this, you know, again, to invoke that term matcher that, that I mentioned earlier, um, I think that there's this sort of deep-seated subconscious equilibrium. I almost wish that all my friends would hear this and... Uh, so that they could let me know if the equilibrium was shifting too far in their direction where they felt put upon by me. Mm-hmm. Because I think I'm much more likely to be aware of the of the injustice of being on the short end of the stick than if the equ- equilibrium happens to go in the other direction. Well, that's a great point, right? Because that goes, that goes back to the fundamental attribution. Totally, right? totally. Right, because the odds are both people feel aggrieved in the relationship, both people feel they've gone 60 to 70% of the way just because we naturally, we naturally see our mistakes as being caused by external forces and we see other people's mistakes as being driven by 
internal motivations. And again, like I've seen this a dozen times. Like I will get upset with a friend and I'll be like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, well, yeah, um, my wife was really sick last week. I'm sorry I was an hour late to call you. And I'm like, wow, aren't I the asshole in this situation? But if I don't get that feedback, it's so easy to make the fallacy and assume that they just didn't care about me or didn't care about my time. So, yeah, that's a great point. Well, so I'm going to um, toot your horn for a second with an example because – and maybe I'm actually just tooting my own – because I was really proud of you a couple of years ago now. We were traveling together. We were flying somewhere together. When it came to the actual day for travel, the thought was, or maybe you had in your mind this idea that um, I was going to go out of my way to pick you up on the way to the airport. And from my perspective, that didn't make sense to me because of the logistics of it. Because it was, it, to me, it made more sense based on what I had going on that morning that we should just meet at the airport. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you were to be not your usual self, non-confrontation seeking, conflict avoiding, you would have just let it go. But then it would have simmered and you would have resented me. And it, maybe it would have manifested itself in some passive aggressive way. It would have weakened our friendship. But in that case, you went the other way. And I was really happy that you did because you called me out on that and... Yeah, I really, I really did. Right? Yeah, I mean, rightly or wrongly, you just sort of, you drew a line in the sand. That to me is like really strengthened our friendship because you were transparent with me. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, for the record, that was one of the bigger blow-ups I think I've ever had. It was incredibly aggravating. And I, I think the way that you handled that was really important for me to see that these situations have to be dealt with. And if they're not, then they just get worse and worse and worse. You know, I was terrified. I was terrified that day that the friendship was over. The fact that it wasn't, I think, helped me to come to grips with this idea that it's important to be transparent with people more. Not honest, but transparent. Yeah, and it was a really big deal for me to see you put your put your balls on the line there because it wasn't some it's not something that you do very often. And so maybe it has greater effect for you because you do it less often. That might just end up being a riskier strategy if you're way like if the if you wait for the pressure valve to get all the way up to eleven. It's funny, I want to shift the conversation just a little bit. Can we be honest to strangers, to people who might have power over our livelihoods, our careers, our families? And be transparent with them and risk essentially retaliation or being taken advantage of or being rejected. I want to believe that we can. I'm just thinking about some of the work, the work of someone like uh, Brene Brown, who writes a lot about making oneself vulnerable and, and the power in doing that, the, the way that that brings people closer. And this isn't, she doesn't just write about it in the way that we were talking about it with, you know, you and me and friendships and personal connections. But she writes about just the, the power of doing that um, in all contexts among leaders, you know, leaders who do that and make them who are honest and, you know, maybe even a little transparent about, about their shortcomings and their fears uh, that that brings people closer to them and helps them be better leaders and more successful um, by bringing people in and 
not just making it out that they have the answers to everything. And there's just that dynamic tension there because there's a lot of benefit from that. But then there's also a lot of benefit from, I mean, Steve Jobs to me is the best example of it because he willed things to happen mm-hmm. because he just said that they could happen and and then people felt inspired by that and then and then they made them happen. So it's not clear cut to me one way or the other on this um, on this topic of whether just where to be on the on the spectrum for for fake it till you make it. Yeah, I really like the idea that I'm a big fan of hers as well, and this idea of leading with your vulnerability or sort of proactively sharing your vulnerability that really resonates with me. And again, I could be completely wrong here, but I feel like everyone feels vulnerable. Everyone has self-doubts. And so we put up a mask to hide them. And then we look around the room and everyone else seems to be fine. But all we're seeing are their masks. And so we all have these doubts, these anxieties. We, we all hide them behind our masks. And we all think everyone else doesn't have them. And if we could just, if we could just admit that, that, that we do have our fears, we do have our anxieties, we do have our vulnerabilities, we would, we'd help other people feel comfortable enough sharing theirs. And then everyone would be open and honest about these essentially very human traits, right? And, and I worry, you know, and I guess I worry about myself. I worry that when I pretend not to be human or when I pretend not to have these traits, again, it's, it's, again, it's hurting myself. It's hurting my friendships. It's hurting my ability to connect with the world. Yeah, I think I think it's a virtuous circle, and I mean we're uh, we're treading on the same ground that we were talking about before with with respect to friendships. And I think that mm-hmm. you know the way in which we choose to make ourselves vulnerable with the people who we want to be closest to and strengthen those friendships, that there's no reason why that can't apply equally well to to strangers and business relationships and, uh, and even enemies, maybe, you know, in some, in some ways it might be, might be easier, um, because this, the stakes could be lower, but in other ways it could be a whole lot harder. Um, cause you don't have that, um, you don't have that assumption, you don't have the benefit of the doubt as much with a, with a stranger as you do with someone who you mm. already have established a, a friendship and a common language and, um, and a level of trust that you're then testing. So, yeah, it's funny. This is a lesson that I think I've only recently learned. And I've talked about it a couple times on the podcast. I think, you know, I call it this idea of, well, it's not my term, but it's the general term of hormesis, that the things that you stress become stronger and the things that you protect become weaker. And this just seems to apply to so many things. And for so long, I've been the kind of person who is super private and super confidential and never exposes himself. And I think it's done me a real disservice. And this podcast is definitely partially an attempt for me to expose myself more. And, you know, so far it's been a really valuable experience. And that makes me hopeful that doing it in other areas of life, as you say, talking to my friends and trying to be more transparent with them and reveal the weakness that I have or the vulnerability I have that I have in this relationship or in this new 
professional setting or this new social setting, it's a path to getting stronger. It's not a path to being hurt. Yeah, I think that's great um, to to stress those things and and see how it works for you. Um, and and, <laughs> right. and hopefully it goes well. <laughs> but who knows? Um, and this applies to the friendship stuff we were talking about before, but also just to the business stuff, uh, to, to all situations where this imposter syndrome may be coming up, is that I don't think that it has to be an all or nothing. It's like maybe before I was saying, hey, maybe I'm too conflict-seeking and you're too conflict-avoiding. It's, you know, it may be that you want to be vulnerable and transparent in some areas, but that you also want to be um, confident and willing to fake it till you make fake it. it. Mm-hmm. Fake it. In other areas, and there, I don't think there's a right answer there, but it's it's definitely worth like being thoughtful about and, and seeing how it goes. Yeah, I think that's a great point, that... Yeah, you have to test it and see what works for which situation. I don't think there's a hard and fast rule to apply. I don't think there's a hard and fast rule, but I do think that um, the more you think about it, you'll come up with your own rules that you could then break, but but guidelines. I mean, for me, that, you know, almost a rule in with friendships is around, you know, is around that point about honesty and, and sometimes transparency. And that might be the case, you know, if you're trying to do a fake it till you make it, is that, okay, maybe you're not entirely transparent about your fears and your weaknesses. You, you Maybe you put some of them out and you make yourself vulnerable somewhat, but that you're not just sort of laying it all out there the first time you meet someone and that you hold you hold back some. Well, it sounded to me actually the opposite. So help me understand your point because it sounded like you were saying, you want to fake it in the early stages. So with a friendship, you assume the friendship is already strong and you act very proactively to do good things for the other person. And in a sense, that's faking it till mm. you make it mm. because you're assuming the friendship is going to work. And in the social or the professional context, it's the same idea that you have to fake it for a while. You have to wear some sort of mask. You, you want, you're wearing the mask of your better self. You're wearing the mask of the person you want to become. You're, you're going through the motions or you're practicing in a way that will create unconscious competence. And that process requires messing up a whole bunch to start because it, you have to hit 10,000 forehands before your body just knows exactly how to hit the ball. But that's not, that's not lying and that's not deceit. It's almost, it's almost like aspirational authenticity. It's saying, this is what I want to be my authentic self. And so I'm going to go act in that way until it's true. Yeah, I think that's a very, um, that's a much more nuanced uh, way of thinking about fake it till you make it and, and imposter syndrome because you, what you're specifically not describing in your definition is is lying. Mm-hmm. It, it, you're not saying I am supremely confident that I can do all of these things and I've already done them and I have this thing and it works. Um, I mean that's what Elizabeth Holmes said, right? To to go back to to her, the, the founder of Theranos. 
she said she had this device that that worked and and it didn't it didn't work and you know if history had gone differently maybe she could have gotten it to work right. ultimately she was in there was a real chance she could have pulled a rabbit out of the hat right she was doing fake it till you make it as so many entrepreneurs do you know steve jobs it worked for her i mean history will will judge her harshly because she was caught in what she was with the, with the fake it till you make it and there's a lot of speculation here we don't know what was what she really thought i just think for me there's a fine line there or i guess not a fine line there's a hard line which is i'm willing to do a little bit of the fake it till you make it but i'm not going to say something that is a lie and so i'm willing to go and um you know to go back to that anecdote at the club uh going outside and saying i'm going to I'm going to leave this club and tell off the bouncer with, with this amazing oh, friend. Right, right. There was nothing that could be, you know, I'm going to fake this friendship and have it and do something that I would theoretically only do for a stronger friend than this person is. That's, that's sort of faking it. That's sort of willing the friendship to, to be stronger than it is. But it's not as though I said something that was false, that was a lie. I was trying to be what I wanted the friendship to become. And then we could evaluate afterwards if it got there. But it didn't seem dishonest to me that I was doing it. Maybe right. it was a little strategic or a little calculating, but it wasn't dishonest. I wasn't lying about it. I was just making it, taking an action that, that felt, felt like the right, the right thing to do at the time. Yeah, I'm struggling to come up with an analogy, and I don't think I'll be able to. But I, I think I understand the distinction you're making, which is you're not going to misrepresent the facts. You're not going to say, you know, oh, I got a 4.0 or, you know, I can do this even if you're unable to do it. But you might say things like, I am very confident in my abilities, or you might present yourself as a very confident person, or you might say like, I've shown the ability that I can figure this out or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in most cases, that's enough because, again, I'm having a hard time putting some of this into words, but like, and maybe this is just me being naive, but I like to think that when we present ourselves as better than we are, that's a good thing, that 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 we're going to rise to that challenge, essentially, and that we're challenging ourselves to get better. So one way in which I perceive myself, I perceive myself in a way that is more positive than reality, which is I perceive myself as very open to criticism and constructive criticism. That's something that I view as a strength that, you know, if you give me feedback, I'm going to do my best to incorporate it and, and try to take it not personally. And what I've really appreciated, uh, with my wife is that she's given me constructive criticism and my response has been very defensive. Mm, mm -hmm. And most people might not tell me that I'm being defensive. But she has. And to me, that is the mark of my best friend. The fact that she... She gives you constructive criticism about your response to the constructive criticism. Yes. And that she calls me out on that. And she even uses the most painful language in doing it. 
which is she says to me, you tell me that receiving constructive criticism is something that you are good at and that you pride yourself on and, it, it, and that it is a core value. And here I am giving you constructive criticism. And the way you're responding is not good. <laughs> and talk about a bitter pill to swallow. That is, that's working the kidneys, right? Because she's attacking your core identity. And it is, but that is what, talk about hormesis. <laughs> like that is what that is why I love her so dearly is that is that she knows that that's in some respects I I mean let's be clear I get angry <laughs> I'm not my best self I'm not level headed um, and in that moment it's you know it's really painful yeah and the kidneys the whole <laughs> all over but ultimately, that's the kind of feedback that makes us stronger. And we can only get that from the people who we feel closest to and who we trust. And I mean, what a blessing that I have that. <laughs> Part of my even saying this out loud here is to help me process it and become better at that. Because yeah. we talk about how sometimes we say things. Some people say, well, if you say something out loud, that it makes you commit to it uh, more. And some people say, well, you say something out loud so that you can feel good about yourself so that you cannot do it. This is something that I'm hoping is in the former category because I'm still struggling with it. And, and just because I'm, I'm louding my wife for this, <laughs> for this criticism doesn't mean that I'm totally okay with it. And, uh, but I want to, yeah, I want to put that footnote on it because it's, it's very much a work in progress. I think talking this stuff through really helps because I will say most of the time I have no idea the words that are going to come out of my mouth. Like I talk and then I hear myself say things and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. There's no, it's not like I'm writing down what I'm going to say before I say it. There's no process like that. And so often I'm just saying things and sometimes I say them and I'm like, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to try to remember that. Or I'm like, no, I don't actually believe what I just said. But at least I got it out there and I could examine what I said. And so I, I do think this process can be helpful. I, I would make one other point, which is, and I see this in myself all the time. Let's say someone insults, or not even insults, but says something that they see as a problem at my core. They're like, oh, Matt, you claim to be honest, but you lied to me on this vacation. You know, you're kind of full of shit. Right? You say you're honest, but you're a hypocrite, which is, which is like a real attack on the ego. And if I'm in a good space, <laughs> which is not all the time, I can see my ego getting really angry. Like I can feel the automatic rejection of that attack boiling up inside me. And if, again, if I'm in the right space, like if I've meditated recently or whatever you know, cliche you want to use – I can observe that anger rather than identifying with it. I can say, of course my ego got upset because my ego is a defensive little bitch. But that doesn't mean I should listen to it or I should let it control me, for God's sake. I am in control. My ego can, can be petulant and whine and tell me to get angry at Adam for telling me the truth. Or I can accept the feedback and try to become a better person as a result. And like, literally, that is 
one of the hardest things that I find to do because it's just so easy to get angry in the moment. You feel <laughs> so righteous getting angry. Like, what the hell does this person know? And no, he's totally full of it. So a question about that and then a, maybe an observation. Um, so what did come up for you when I mentioned that, I don't know, six months later? Well, the first reaction I had was, oh, my God, he's been carrying this around for six months. Like, this is a real problem because, you know, my expectation was that the, the anger had been building or the sense of betrayal had been building for six months, which is super unhealthy. And then my second thing was my second reaction. And this was an instinctive, automatic reaction was he's full of shit like yeah, I lied, but it wasn't a bad lie. It was a minor lie. It was a white lie. I don't see why he's making a big deal out of this. This doesn't make me dishonest just because I lied. How dare he say something like that? And again, it's amazing like to watch those instinctive reactions come up and to try to disassociate myself from them and to say, okay, like I'm going to give my instinctive body a second to think all the horrible things and then I'm not going to listen to them. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you you had that, and then you got past that, and then and then you heard it. Yeah. Again, I think to use some of the cliches of this language, like I tried to just sit with it for a minute, and like, okay, I understand that, like, this is how my body or my ego instinctively responds to this attack. But that doesn't mean that I have to respond the way my ego wants me to respond. One observation from that, and in response to your comment of, oh, goodness, has Adam been sitting on this and letting it simmer for that time? The good news is, well, so one, yes, I had been sitting on it for a long time. But the good news is, is that it wasn't simmering and close to boiling over because I didn't think too much about it. Mm -hmm. It was a small thing. It was just you pouring out an ounce of beer and it was a know, lot. It, it, well, it was something, it was something that I sort of thought at the time that I'd like to bring up with you, but at the right time. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing. So as a conflict seeker, one thing that I think I've gotten better at is trying to find the right time to engage with the conflict and it's, it's certainly a work in progress too, but it's finding both the right time for me when I'm in the best space to do it. And also when I think it might be the right time for the person who might be most receptive to it. And I think I've gotten better at that. And when I brought it up with you, it wasn't as though I called you up and thought, I'm going to finally tell Matt about that incident from when he lied over the summer. It was somehow, no, no, it, Sorry for interrupting. It came up organically. I think I might even have said, boy, it's a good thing I'm super honest and never lie to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. And then Adam was like, um, yeah, about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it felt like the right time because the topic came up and it was a very organic thing. And, and I thought, well, there, there could well be some dissonance here, but it's also an opportunity for learning because – Maybe you remembered that situation and maybe it really was just an, an honest mistake. Like, yeah, but it's, oh my God, it's so amazing how painful it is to have someone actually hold up a mirror in front of you. Because 
we construct these self, well, again, I should not use that term. I, I create self-portraits of myself that are, you know, they're like the portrait of Dorian Gray. Like, they look fantastic at the start. I guess that's the wrong, that's the wrong metaphor, because the portrait always looks great, even as I get worse, right? So it's the reverse of Dorian Gray. The portrait stays young and, and noble and virtuous and honest. And as long as I have that conception of myself, I'm free to go do all the evil things I want, but my self-conception doesn't change. So yeah, I do bad things, but I'm still a good person. And that's exactly the wrong attitude for me to have because it's the things that we do that matter. It's not this perfect self-conception. It's our actions that define who we are. And so like, I'm, again, I go back to your discussion with your wife where she felt comfortable enough, not only calling you on your bullshit, but on your response to her calling you out on your bullshit. And I guess I would ask like, because it is such a difficult thing to do, do you have like a, a habit in place to make it easier or a routine. I was listening to this podcast the other day and the guy had a really good idea. He was like, if you have a child, have a room that is like the room with no punishment or no consequences. In this room, you can tell dad anything and you will not be punished. And he was like, this is really important. If they injured themselves or if they're being bullied or if someone is molesting them and they've been told if they tell anyone, they're going to get in trouble. But if you have this room, this magic room that protects them from consequence or, or punishment, then they can be really honest with you in that room, which is incredibly important for like a six-year-old or an eight-year-old. And so I guess I would say like, how do you or do you create rituals or routines that make that kind of honesty easier are you asking about with a child or with a spouse no with the, with this with anyone i guess mm -hmm. I'm just curious if there's anything you do to make that process easier no i don't have that ritual but i think it's a really good idea and it's something that that we've talked about but haven't executed on yet mm. i think it's a lot easier to receive feedback after the moment than during it when what's the moment I can't say for sure but if if when you spilled out the beer and then came into the kitchen and I said hey did you just spill out the beer and you said no what are you all right no I didn't say that I said do you know what happened to my beer and you said oh, no idea shrug if I had been like Matt you're lying you just I watched mm. you spill out my beer and if I had done it right then worst time to do it worst time to do it yeah um you know and my ego would your habits. Yeah, it would have been. I mean, the immediacy of backup. the uh, would have been just. You would have gone into uh, fight or flight mode, full defense. So the only thing that I am on the ritual side is that I would like to have the ritual be to try and have the conversation later, to uh. take to take some time and and create some space and distance from the the point of conflict, whatever it may be, or whatever, with whomever it may be, and then address it later when I've had some time to process. The trigger happens, you give it time to breathe, and then you can approach it more calmly. Yes. Okay.
Yeah, and also it gives you time for your own uh, for your own emotions to settle, and you can look at it and try. I mean, it's really hard to change your mind on something, but at least you give your you give yourself a chance to. Right. If you can say, okay, well, gosh, this is what I thought about that situation, and a day later, do I still feel the same way? And I was reading in this book this idea of um, when you're when you're making a decision or you're having a reaction, how are you going to feel about it in 10 minutes, 10 months, 10 years? And I tried to take that and incorporate it, and I actually went to a different time horizon. I said, how am I going to feel about it in 10 seconds? And then I think I used the other ones. I mean, maybe I said 10 seconds and then 10 minutes and 10 months or something mm-hmm. to try and gauge how big a deal it was to try to think about how I'm going to feel about it in the future. Because in the moment, everything seems to matter. Everything is enhanced. And so if you can, if you can try and put yourself in that frame of different time horizons, I think that's valuable. Let me see if I understand that. If you, if you react immediately, you're probably going to react emotionally with the ego, defensively, negatively. And so you give it a chance to settle, and you see if the emotion is still attached to the event. But if you wait a week, and you're still emotional about it, then it's real. There's a real issue, and you have to bring it up. Yeah, not that you have to bring it up, but yeah, I mean, the longer that you sit with it and it's still something that you remember, there's probably something there. I think I think we've talked about that. Right. The, the 10 seconds, 10 minutes, 10 months thing is actually a mechanism to try and use in the moment to try and to try and get to the future faster. Right. To say, I'm feeling something right now. Am I going to be feel? do I think I'm going to be feeling the same way in 10 seconds, 10, 10 minutes? 10 weeks, 10 months, whatever it may be, because then you're trying to pattern recognize from previous times that you've been upset. Does that work for you? Because in my mind, I can't imagine that working for me because I'm in the moment. And like in the moment, I say, yeah, in 10 months, I'm still going to be very angry. This is a big deal. But then if I actually wait an hour, again, so many times I have written an angry text to a friend because of something that they said. And then I don't send it. And then an hour later, I'm like, why was I angry? That made no sense. And so I erased the text. But, I mean, if you can accelerate that process in the moment just by thinking of what you would feel like in 10 months, dude, I'm impressed. Yeah, I'm not that great at it. Okay. But, <laughs> but, um, but I, have, I have tried it and I've had some limited success with it. So it's definitely something that I think is worth trying to do more. Yeah, I think that even if you can have the thought 10 seconds, 10 minutes, 10 months, and you're already 90% of the way there. So I just have to remember to do that more often. So, but no, it's not, uh, I've had limited success, but it's worked a couple times and I've been pleased with it enough to, to bring it up here. Again, there seems to be sort of a happy medium where you shouldn't respond with emotion right away because that's probably not even you talking. It's just your ego talking. But I hope in the future you won't wait six months because six months does seem to me to be a dangerously long time because 
use what term you want, like the cortisol is at elevated levels that whole time, or you just have this negative connotation when you think about me that whole time, or it's just this itch that needs to be scratched and hasn't been for six months. Yeah, no, that's fair. I will take that uh, on the record as as feedback. There might have been, I might have, I might have been a little bit fearful of bringing it up. Mm. And it might have been that I was constantly looking for the right time and never, and never felt that it was the right time. Well, okay, let's just brainstorm really quickly about this. Because I think this idea of having a ritual or routine is worth, it's at least worth failing at. Do it as well as you can over and over, and you reward yourself just for trying and failing. And then you try again, and you fail again, and you're like, that's fantastic, I failed. Because I have to fail 50 times or 1,000 times before I succeed. And, you know, that's growth mindset, and that's trial and error, and that's the scientific method, you know, blah, blah, blah. Let's think for one second about the next time that we get angry with each other or disappointed. How can we create a structure to make it easier to be transparent? This is going to sound a little bit cheeky. Um, Cheeky. But I think that the ritual is in the practice of it. You used habit and fake it till you make it interchangeably. I think that they're quite different. The best way for us to create the ritual is to just is to just do it. Um, I think that a couple things around it are the language, the word choice, the open-heartedness of it, the assumption of trust and friendship and love and um, all of those good things. One must bring himself to that place before bringing it up or as close to that place as is possible given whatever the situation might be and then go for it okay that's it as always any thoughts feedback criticism much appreciated i will catch you next week